0: Started. You can keep
1: eating. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do. Amy and I are gonna do some introductions and just a little bit of guidance uh, for the first part of the meeting. So I'd like to welcome you all here. This is a uh, my part has been anticipating this morning for several weeks now, and so I'm very excited about what the Lord is gonna do because I feel like He's called this much more than any person. Um, so Amy, perhaps you could begin by just introducing Father Peter. Mm-hmm.
2: In the summer of 2008, Thomas and I had the good fortune of sort of stumbling into a gathering in Herrenhut, Germany, an Antioch council meeting. We didn't really know what to expect. It was sort of an excuse to take our children to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> but when we, <laughs> when we arrived, and in fact, the, the gathering was five days. We planned to spend two and a half days. Um, unless it was really, really good. <laughs> we, we ended up staying longer than we anticipated. Um, for for many years, it, you all know our story, um, the theme of reconciliation had been in our hearts. Uh, I think first, uh, racially, racial reconciliation, and then, sort of, much to my surprise, I became Catholic in 2000, in 2000. And... Uh, and in that process, it was, I never ever felt like I was um, rejecting my roots or where I came from. I love my church very much. But Thomas and I fell in love again um, with the Catholic Church. And, and we just began to see that uh, we fell in love with the strengths of both traditions and, and could also see weaknesses. And so we were just pondering this in our mind, what, what the Lord might do and 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 how unity might look in the church. And we stumbled into Antioch and found people that had thought far more deeply <laughs> and had far more experience than we, and we were just amazed and up And Father Pierre was one of those men. And, um, and so we've asked him to speak to us this morning a little bit about um, his experience um, in the many streams of, of the church where he's been invited and the charismatic and real movement. And specifically, he, he said something to me. He mentioned a quote of John Paul II, but I, I had never heard. He said, ecumenism is not an exchange of ideas. It's an exchange of gifts. Mm. And that really struck me. And so, we um, would like to ask Father Peter to speak a, to us a little bit about that idea. That okay. Mm-hmm. <coughs>
3: In a sense, I should speak about unity. First, I think we we stand today at a point that is um, very significant, and there are um, new opportunities, new openings at the present time. This is a very auspicious season. Reconciliation, for reconciliation, for work for unity, and um, I want to speak more into this. I mean, I was of all the sort of things that have been the Lord has brought together in in my life, in my understanding, in what I teach. Um, unity is one that's been there from an earlier stage a lot of other th- things were added or dimensions but unity was was there right at the beginning um, from my um, first within a year of becoming a Catholic and, um, and it has always been important now of course my Understanding of what that involves, what it would cost, what it would require—everything to do with it—is expanded and developed, and so on. But I've been privileged to to meet um, quite a number of you know, and be influenced by a number of really um, pioneer figures in in this area. And. some sort of more pioneer Catholics in this area, but also, for example, David duplessis mm-hmm. and, um, and others. And mm-hmm. the but why is this time 2010 important? Well, you see the The ecumenical movement is normally dated from the year 1910, from the Great Protestant Missionary Conference held in Edinburgh, Scotland in June 1910. So there will be many celebrations of Edinburgh (coughs) um, this year, and many are in course of preparation. Now, what I've noticed is, see, this was actually 1910, was it was a missionary conference it was a gathering of missionaries and this in itself is significant because it means the great modern impulse to unity um, came from a missionary meeting and the missionaries I mean they were primarily North American and European missionaries at that meeting though there were a few representatives from other continents Um, but they were deeply convicted of the, the, the tragedy of divisions and of presenting um, a rivalry on the mission field, and they, the Lord convicted them of the fact that this was a, a, a scandal, an obstacle to believing. And they were, and the key text was John seventeen: not only that they may be one, but that the world may believe and so um, and in fact there was a strong evangelical presence at the Edinburgh meeting which is important in view of what happened later um, now there were no Catholics at Edinburgh, no Orthodox there was one Catholic bishop in Italy who sent a very positive message um, but he was obviously a remarkable man because there was no echo of this from higher levels. Um, the, um, in fact, a rather frosty attitude. <laughs> 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 um, but um, th- this, but in the conferences that I've seen um, planned for this summer. Um, there are some that are celebrating the centenary of the ecumenical movement, there are some evangelical conferences celebrating the centenary of this important missionary conference without any reference to the ecumenical Mm -hmm. dimension and you know this illustrates a dilemma Mm -hmm. in a way Um, and the sad way in which evangelicals um, came to view the whole movement for unity in a rather negative and suspicious way. Um, I'm not wanting to talk primarily about the problems, the obstacles, but I'll I'll touch on some things. Now, um, you know, Pentecostals uh, typically followed the evangelical position, but Pentecostals... For the first um, two generations, perhaps, did not have really any developed scholarship. Their the educational institutions developed slowly and began with sort of rather simple Bible colleges and so on. And um, and so Pentecostals tended to accept all of the theology of the evangelicals, and but they added a uh, tacked on. Speaking in tongues and healing, (laughs) but otherwise they accepted a sort of evangelical framework and uh, so on. Now, um, and therefore, they accepted evangelical. They tended to follow evangelical prevailing attitudes about um, unity and ecumenical movement. Now, I think the evangelical developed in hostility. Overall, and especially from the 1960s onwards, <coughs> against organized ecumenical movements symbolized for them by the World Council of Churches. And, uh, and this was seen, and particularly by Pentecostals, as a sort of hum- merely human effort to try and reconst- reconstitute unity, as opposed to the Holy Spirit's way of reconstituting unity and they saw themselves as the vehicles of of the work of the Spirit the only problem about this for the rest of the Christian world is that the Pentecostal movement does not shine forth as an obvious example of uh, producing unity (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's not a very convincing witness to unity whatever else it's a witness to and it is positive witness in all sorts of ways but not really to unity Um, so um, now I've been involved in the Society Pentecostal Studies f- for many years and in fact I came here from their conference in Minneapolis and what's very interesting is you know, I, I joined I it, it was at the first conference that, I think in 1977 that I went to but it was only founded in 72 and um, even then in 77 if you were talking, the majority of people there would be Pentecostals. They always welcomed charismatic scholars, so I was always welcome. There was never any um, question of not welcoming me. But at that time, to use the word ecumenical in a Pentecostal context was to, you know, you realised it was it was a negative word that um, you're better to avoid, um, and so. And what's amazing is, I've just come from the conference in Minneapolis, today, the Pentecostal um, Society of Pentecost Studies, which has people from all the Pentecostal institutions in North America there, on the faculties, and um, they have a section on ecumenical studies. Hmm. Um, And this is well attended and well supported. One, one of their number in fact a German who, Pentecostal who's teaching in the USA he, he just produced a book Pentecostalism and Christian Unity with contributions from many Pentecostals mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's representing a very different um, a, a much more positive approach than what we what the, was the case 30 years ago This there's something really stirring there in the issue of unity and, um, and you see um, I don't know how many people here have heard of the Global Christian Forum anybody heard of the Global Christian Forum you see, there you are now this is interesting <laughs> <laughs> the Global Christian Forum is a very significant development I'll tell you to say something in you see in 19 in the middle of the 90s um, one or two people on the World Council of Churches staff were very cons- became very concerned and burdened about the fact that the official ecumenical movement um, did not include, on the whole, the evangelicals and very few Pentecostals, and that here was one of the fastest growing segments of the Christian world, and their absence and their hostility undermined the credibility of of the whole. Or these ecumenical bodies that didn't have an evangelical and Pentecostal presence. And they, and th- these men realised that something had to change. There, there had to be a way of bringing together all Christians. And and they set themselves to do this and they worked hard and they made content and they didn't have much publicity about it. And in fact they organised Meetings with church leaders on every in every continent over a period of ten years or so, leading up to the first worldwide one in Kenya, Limuru, Kenya, in November two thousand and seven. And at Limuru, Kenya, was the first time that there'd been major leadership from all the churches. The, the Catholic Church, Vatican's representative, the Orthodox churches, the the, the mm. historic Protestant churches, and many senior Pentecostal leaders um, and evangelical leaders from around the world. The only sort of grouping, probably the group, the grouping of evangelical Pentecostals that weren't there, and there weren't many, were more from. Parts of the USA, but um, the um, but this was the first time that ever been a meeting of this sort, and it had been kept. And they realised if they were going to do this, it, there had to be a new way, a new method, and, we, and they had to avoid everything that put the Evangelicals and Pentecostals off the world council of churches. So they they. It planned totally different they didn't begin with doctrines and so on and theological discussions like a lot of other things have done what they did was they, they gave the beginning of it over to everybody sharing who Jesus Christ was for them
4: mm-hmm.
3: and this broke the barriers from the start mm-hmm. and it opened eyes mm-hmm. and, um, and also they said no titles Everyone, Christian names to everyone else, Mm -hmm. and this was Mm followed, even with the officials from the Vatican Mm -hmm. and um, (laughs) and uh, and the Orthodox um, Mm -hmm. archbishops and so on. And um, and they um, there was, you see, and also. I think that there was this recognition of that there has to be seeking of the Spirit, the role of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit. And, um, and so there's a search going on here, if you like, for, for a new method, a new. Uh, because they did survey afterwards, there's a book read with all the re- f- feedback from this meeting. Everyone, practically everyone said this, this is must continue <coughs> this must continue now, one of the problems is how do you continue <coughs> so, how do you move forward but <coughs> um, this is happening and um, you see this makes this also a special season also I think that a lot of people in a lot of leaders from Asia, Africa Latin America or quite a lot Though there, there are particular regional problems like um, Catholic evangelical tensions in Latin America and so on but the um, on the whole you know, there's a process going on. I find, for example, the Asian Pentecostal leaders are, you know, they're, they're, getting a, they're getting freed from sort of European baggage. You know, because what these people are seeing is it's like when the missionaries went out, they took not only the gospel, but they took a lot of less positive stuff with them and imposed it, you know, that came right out of European history. So it's like all the problems of European history are dumped on the Asians and Africans as well. You know, and people saying, you know, there has to be a way beyond this. And um, so, um, yeah, it, it's a very significant time. Now, um, I shared last night with those of you who were there about how I was led to see that the at the heart of everything is the Spirit's work of preparation for the second coming of the Lord, because this is what everything is directed towards, not just now, but from the beginning, because God is not a sort of short-term operator. <laughs> um, and so... Um, you know, Scripture speaks of the one plan, which is to bring all things in heaven and on earth under um, His Son, and um, and this um, is the work of the Spirit. Now, you see, this adds a whole dimension to the work for unity because there is only one kingdom, there is one coming King, um, and therefore the state of division is an obstacle to the comp- fulfilment of the Lord's purposes mm-hmm. it's not just a scandal that makes it more difficult for a people to believe the gospel it's also this is at the heart of reconciliation that you know the, the kingdom is a kingdom where all is reconciled yes. and <coughs> everything that's not reconciled yes. is a hindrance to the completion of the Lord's purposes and so this I think this adds a further dimension to this quest for unity because um, every unhealed division every um, is is a hindrance to the coming of the Lord and the Kingdom in fullness and And I think that, you know, the. I see, so this is the direction the Holy Spirit is leading. Um, now, when you look <coughs> back over the ecumenical movement, I think, in fact, there have been remarkable achievements through the whole process of. of, of of the ecumenical movement, whatever its defects, and there have been defects there have been remarkable achievements which it's important to recognize and be aware of. I mean first of all, we live in a situation where most church leaders, a lot of them are in, have some contact with other leaders and uh, just to speak of the Catholic Church I mean uh, um, the in England uh, when I went back from the USA, I was secretary to Catholic Bishop for f- five years and um, you know the Bishop w- would know all the other church leaders of the area and 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 meet them quite regularly and build Christian name terms with them and th- this is uh, accepted today as normal there. Mm-hmm. Um, 50 years ago this hap- did not happen at all you know and, um, and, and um, at the level of, of theology and doctrine a lot of you know there was the Catholic Lutheran agreement of 1999 on justification by faith I'm not going to go into the details of this but this was the big issue um, which uh, Luther which became the instrument the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, and in 1999, there's a joint statement by the Catholic and and Lutheran authorities that, that, of, of agreement on the fundamentals of this teaching, mm. and and this is highly significant. Now, one of the problems is that a lot of people, certainly on the Catholic side, probably the Lutheran side, are not very aware of of this and also the implications of it so you can get places where um, in the Catholic Church where this is not exactly what is taught um, and also um, one of there's been disappointment in a lot of circles particularly like Catholic Lutheran circles in Germany that um, this hasn't led to a transformed situation because there have been, you know, because the state of division produces differences, tensions, other problems are generated after the original cause. And so, there's a lot of other unresolved things and particularly the whole issue about, for for communion. But, um, but nonetheless, there's been (coughs) remarkable progress. But, what comes out of this is a widespread feeling there has been, people who know there has been remarkable progress from scholars working on the causes of division and show, and yet somehow we've reached an impasse as though you've reached a point where you can't really go much further and you know there's been there's, there's often politeness not in all circles of course but politeness where th- there used to be simply no communication and hostility there's cases where the, there's um, between scholars that there's an agreement where and convergence where there was simply outright confrontation before um, but um, are we really much further forward see and in a way yes we are but it's like there's there's something more needed there's a breakthrough needed Mm -hmm. now there's there are signs about what the breakthrough (coughs) what is needed Um, I mentioned last night a Catholic ecumenical pioneer called the Abbe Paul Couturier from France, from Lyon who was remarkable he he was led into this in early 1930s And he gave a lot of teaching about unity. (coughs) And he saw the need for confession of the sins of the past, for a humbling and a repentance for the sins against unity. And I think um, this is the thing that hasn't really happened. And this is... one of the things we we know I'm sure everyone here believes repentance is the key to change to transformation and and this has not really happened at this community level Um, and it's not just a question of attitude now there was a huge breakthrough in 93 94 when John Paul II on the Catholic side called for a confession of the sins of the past Catholics this, this happens to some extent one of the difficulties with it, there's, there's a, I feel there's unfinished business here because one of the things is this relationship between individual Catholics and the Church and the Catholic Church for various reasons officially is very won't say the Church has sinned. some way I think it's obvious that the Church has sinned, but the question is how do you express this because I think, um, you know, it, you can't just reduce the sins against unity in history to the sins of individuals. Catholic Church has no trouble today, in theory, of saying even popes sin seriously against unity. But it, the question is, this question of the Church, the corporate, mm, yeah. you see. Now, in fact, there were decisions... I think, that were profoundly wrong that were church decisions. And, you know, and this is very hard, huge problem for the Catholic Church to address. And I understand this. I don't think it's just stubbornness. You see, there's something that has to be um, upheld here. But the question is, it, it's a question of humility It's a question of being freed of fears, Mm -hmm. which are huge. You know, if we admit anything here, then this undermines the whole um, system, so to speak. (coughs) Um, And I I think this is one huge issue that it's very important for praying people with a heart for reconciliation to understand. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just an issue of stubbornness, but um, because I think. There, there, there is light needed from the Lord on this question of, you see, because if if you say that Jesus is the head of the church and the church, organic unity, there is a concern about saying the church has sinned when you're affirming the church is one body for which Jesus is the head because you're certainly not attributing sin to the head. And, and so how do you say that sort of um, limbs of the body have sinned, so to speak? Um, but there's something that has to be addressed here that, th- that there is corporate sin and not just sin of individuals, whether leaders or led. And this is a key a key, key issue. Um, I think the, also I feel strongly that you know the Catholic Church has the has the, the biggest responsibility here of all the churches because in a way all division, no division happens without sin and um, it's like the division of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament you know whatever the rights and wrongs you know when when Solomon sinned and David's in Solomon and sin, and the kingdom is divided. The promises to David are not revoked. You know the the, the situation of Jerusalem remains the same, but uh, there are serious consequences of the sin. And the <coughs> and I think in a way, whatever the sins of of others, which is for them to address. That the, the, no divisions happen without some sin on the side of those who who are being left, so to speak, of, of the in this case, therefore of the Catholic Church and of the Catholic and Orthodox sort of together before the time of division, and so I think there is a prime responsibility here and. and um, and I, I, I feel, feel this strongly. I'm convinced of this. Um, and so one of the things I think is to really pray that the Catholic Church will have the courage and the leadership will have the courage to move forward here. Mm. I think John Paul II was a man of great courage and he moved forward in significant ways. Um, and of course his cyclical I mentioned with this quotation it actually says that ecumenical dialogue is not just an exchange of ideas but an exchange of gifts and this is very fundamental because you see when you say think it's just an exchange of ideas you can say well the other, we're exchanging ideas but the other people's ideas are mostly wrong, <laughs> but when you're saying it's an exchange of gifts, you're recognising there are gifts that they carry good mm-hmm. and this is really significant you see yes. and and the gifts are carried this is in the context ecumenical therefore it's corporate it's in these communities that are carrying gifts and and i think this is the right way to look at it now you see this is where paying attention to the role of the holy spirit in work of unity is absolutely foundational and why i think people Pentecostal charismatic Christians have a... Here they have a special responsibility. i said the Catholic Church has a special responsibility. Here Pentecostal charismatic Christians have a special responsibility that flows from the experience of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, the experience of the Spirit, it... um, See, it's this that allows a freedom of expression... In prayer and also of expecting the Lord will speak and expecting the Lord will guide and this opens up all kinds of possibilities mm-hmm. and you know I've been in things where one of the difficulties is that for people who are not used to, to this kind of prayer, who are not used to listening on to the Lord and sharing what they're hearing and, and speaking um, prophetically People who are not used to this, all they can sort of do really is sort of come together and be silent or, or um, recite um, uh, for already formulated prayers, whether biblical or um, subsequent. And, um, and you know, and it's good that people do this, but it doesn't lead to breakthroughs on the whole. You know, because the breakthroughs, you require the light of the Lord.
4: Amen.
3: And, um, you see, for example, you know, I'm involved in this initiative toward Jerusalem Council two the Messianic Jews, and, Jews, and we, we were planning a meeting in Jerusalem in 06, and we got a prophetic word that we were to go to Antioch first. Now, that was very significant, because Antioch was a highly key place in the story of Christian unity and um, you see and, and one of the things that this has taught us also and also seen with this whole history with the Jews and the Messianic Jews is we've experienced the Lord has been leading us back through history and you see so what this shows up is that the process towards unity and reconciliation involves healing of all the wounds of history because we are all wounded Our body are wounded by the sins of the past and this is why this is needed it's not an unhealthy preoccupation sort of pathological focus on past wrongs or something it's concerned with healing the wounds mm-hmm. and um, because these wounds go very deep and um I think this is something that um, the more you go into the world of sort of the Middle East for example the more you realise this because you know I think even in Europe where we're surrounded by history when we can be a bit it, it's more difficult in the United States where there are not the same historical roots but you know when the Pope for example John Paul II met the, the Uh, Orthodox Archbishop of Athens I think in 2001 um, the Archbishop of Athens said when are you going to um, recognize the evils of Poplar for what you did in the year 1204 (laughs) you know when the Crusaders uh, who were supposed to be going to, to free Jerusalem they attacked Constantinople and they sacked the city and they stole all sorts of treasures and so on and for them, this, the, for the Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox, you know, this is what the Latin West, the Catholics, did to them. And, and this is alive and vivid to them in 12, from 800 years before. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, John Paul II responded to that by accepting this and he didn't argue and he didn't say you're exaggerating or something like that he, he, he responded humbly and that is also essential because you know um, and, and, and therefore focus, reliance on the Holy Spirit and a repentance and a humility these are absolutely essential elements in the, in, in the way forward and so I think um these are some thoughts um, uh, uh, um, to share with you and maybe we should well see where the Spirit leads us so mm-hmm. Lord we ask you to guide us in discussion mm-hmm. by your Holy Spirit Lord that, um, mm-hmm. that it's not my ideas that matter Lord but it's your purposes and, your, and, and Lord I just pray that we may Will receive more light on the way forward that that you in which you want to lead us Mm for. One other thing about you see, up to now, when John Paul II called for a repentance, the sins of the past, there has been a confession of the sins of 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 individuals of violence and so on. Um, you know, there's, there's been confession of the, of the wrongs done to to other Christians of persecution and so on but what there has not been is anything in the area of teaching and this is also a necessary step because for example with justification by faith we've come to an agreement I mentioned with Lutherans about justification by faith Um, say more about that if you like But um, but you see in this there's not been any, from the Catholic side, any recognition that the teaching and practice in this area just before the time of Luther was seriously defective. You know, because, you know, a protest like that does not happen and then gain great ground because everything's in good order. Mm -hmm. Um, You see? And, And yet this is so hard because when the Catholic Church has defended itself you know, from the attacks and particularly from the time of the Reformation, you know, the, the instinct has been to, to defend and to say, you know, we, you know the emphasis, the development of the teaching on infallibility and so on. And it's like there's, I mean, the truth in all this is it's a teaching about the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which is real. But the problem is it becomes a defensive exercise Um, also against attacks which are exaggerated and so on but there's there's something there because um, and the same thing like with the issue of the Jews you see it's taught from Vatican II onwards by the Catholic Church God has not rejected the Jews and um, this teaching was wrong now it was never an official teaching by the way but um, there was a whole lot there, but this needs to be addressed and stated because, um, and one of the effects of not confessing the sin in 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 wrong, te- widespread wrong teaching, it, it produces this situation which the Catholic Church I think suffers from a bit today, which is that you you can get people who are really. Um, haven't moved with the spirit with what's happened at the council and who regard their position as equally legitimate and so at at best maybe (laughs) but um, so you know you get what you might call an unreformed and a reformed understanding that are both offered as equally legitimate alternatives and this is not a very satisfactory situation Um, just my thought okay that's so I, I have
1: lots of thoughts um, one is just as a community of prayer that, that in the Austin House of Prayer one of the we feel like the primary callings God has given us is to pray towards reconciliation yeah. I think Father Peter has offered us a lot of meat to chew on in terms of specific Prayers, directions of prayers that, uh, that um, we'll, we can spend. We'll spend many years praying through, you know, praying through So I, I just want to respond in that way to say we receive what you know what I've heard you say several times, which is as a praying people you need to be aware of this and pray towards it. And I want my response is to say yes, we want to receive that. And honor that, and begin praying in these ways, which are along the lines of what we've been praying. So it's uh, encouraging to hear some of the good <coughs> things because the types of things we've been praying for. And yet at the same time, I, I believe what you said about a breakthrough is needed. There's more that the Lord wants to do. Um, so that's that's just one response that rises in my heart. I just want to open it up for thoughts or for responses. Uh, so. <coughs>
5: It was a statement you made last night that to me was such a crystal clear word to the church right now. And uh, when you said, in effect, the, the potential for reconciliation is in direct proportion to the depth of our conversion to Christ, mm-hmm. that to me was like, I could just walk away and just <laughs> <"Lord>, <laughs> tell me more. Yeah. And if you would just elaborate on that a bit further, I think that would be mm-hmm. tremendous that to me was such a the, the bell rang thing that is the Holy Spirit speaking to the church
3: yes. well in a way all of this this sort of thing was profoundly examined by this French pioneer I mentioned Couture back in the 1930s and he died in 1953 um, incidentally when Pope Benedict went to Germany soon after his election he, he referred Um, with uh, to this teaching of Couturier with great favour Um, but of course Couturier's teaching here on what he called spiritual ecumenism and that conversion is at the heart of all work for unity was in fact incorporated into key paragraphs of Vatican II decree on ecumenism paragraphs 6, 7 and 8 and anyone who wants to see this look up the Korean ecumenism powers 6, 7 and 8 because that is in fact was Couturier's teaching mm-hmm. exactly which was accepted by all the bishops of the Catholic Church in 1964 um, and um, this was amazing really because of course when he taught his teaching in the 1930s it wasn't accepted by the really really. now um that's the way things work um pioneer sort of pioneers and he suffers and he perseveres and then the fruit begins to show um but um you see in part of this was that Couturier was facing this thing that um the prevailing Catholic attitude at that time was the only way to unity was for all the others to come back sort mm-hmm. of return to Rome view of things and, um, and he pointed a way beyond this and the way he did it was through this the fact that of everyone has to become more like Christ every person pers- Christian personally but also in our um, communities faith corporately the church and he therefore spoke of that the the walls will come down as all communities are conformed more fully to Christ the teaching Christ the mystery of Christ the spirit of Christ and so um, you see this shows the way beyond this view of all the others have to return to Rome because but the, all the others have to return to Romans the others all have to change but we don't um, and this is saying everyone has to change everyone you know because we've all we all sinned and we all have to become more like Christ and the way you can develop this also lives, so we all have to be more faithful more deeply rooted in biblical revelation um but in this view the way to unity is not return; it, it's being all being led forward um, to the point of the full conformity to Christ and this is I think the right way to see it but this is in fact the approach that is there in, in official Catholic documents on unity of recent times Um, and which do not present in this way a return view now however it's not surprising that old attitudes die hard so to speak and that you you can find remnants of the return to Rome view in in Catholics today obviously Um, but um way some of this controversy has been reawakened recently by the whole issue of some groups of disaffected Anglicans or Episcopalians asking the Catholic Church if they can be received into communion with Rome corporately as as an Anglican group and the Pope has given a sort of favourable response to that but this awakens all this return mm-hmm. to Rome kind of fear this is really what the, the hidden the real Catholic view that's not spoken out right this is here sort of um, showing its ugly face again so to speak and I think this is not true this is a response to a particular request And um, but and in a way it does open show it, there is a recognition that they're carrying gifts you know the fact that mm-hmm. you see because what the Pope is offering to do is to find a niche in the Catholic Church in effect of like new dioceses for um, Episcopalians coming to communion um, in which they preserve the maximum number of features of, of Anglican life liturgy and heritage and um, what that would mm-hmm. look like it's not so easy to tell there obviously would be a lot of discussion I um, we but um, I think that this issue of you, know, you see there's also the question does this mean that every, that every this convergence that everyone has to change does this mean that you know, there w- w- would be in a reunited church, the Pope would have totally disappeared. Well, no, that's not how the Catholic Church sees it, but it's a question that, you see, even now, the Catholic Church today looks really quite different from the Catholic Church of 1950 or so. I mean, it changed, I think actually, the Catholic Church has changed more as a result of Vatican doing than any other Christian church in the whole of history um, mm. um, but um, so it will look different but the essentials will be preserved and the question of course is what are the essentials now at the end of John Paul II's and VI on unity he made a remarkable offer which was a big surprise to people he, made, he said he invited the leaders and scholars, theologians of all other communities to join with him in seeking ways in which the ministry of the Pope could be exercised in a way that's faithful to its essential character and its calling to be a ministry of unity um, but in a way that was was not uh, presenting obstacles to unity, the recognition it had been obstacle and there must be a way the Spirit would show that it could be, this ministry could be exercised in a way that serving unity and not to it and this is, was a remarkable offer now um, in fact lots of other judges did respond to this and there's a big collection of all the responses in Rome which have not been published up to this point and no action has been taken on this yet uh, but this is, is another thing mm-hmm. because this is essential see because in it's this is another aspect of this becoming more like Christ it's a matter of purification every Christian family heritage needs profound purification Mm -hmm. see and this is what's going to make unity possible it's a unity impossible without a profound purification and of course this raises the question what are the principles for purification but I think I think this has in fact been happening in various ways. But of course, you know, I think in 40 years ago among, or 50 years ago that it was possible to have a naive optimism about this as though the way towards unity is you, you're just progressing further and further along this way of reconciliation and unity um, as though the devil is not also at work and there's you know because in fact there are new divisions and there's you know there's um, it isn't it's never going to be a simple progress you know that now you know we've made these steps and so on and then we make the next and we're just moving forward and there's nothing sort of negative happening it's not like that Um, and um this requires great wisdom and, and much greater discernment, probably than there has been from from church leaders. And um, the, but you see, discernment is a gift of the Spirit, and um, so you're constantly coming back to the need for the Spirit. But uh, what is needed in is discernment about in all the church leadership about what are. The movements, of the spirit. What is the spirit saying to the churches? What in all the things that are happening are really the work of the spirit, and what a work of other spirits or things that are real distractions that may look good but are in fact are not, and that church leaderships are not always deeply discerning these things. And this is a very important issue. Um, You know, the issue of spirituality, um, I think that actually Pope Benedict is somebody who even when he, in his previous job before becoming Pope, was, I think, much more aware of this issue than most, which is the importance of discerning all spiritual currents. Mm. Because there has been a bit of a tendency in the Catholic world to welcome anything that promotes prayer of any kind mm. um, you know anything that sort of prevents prayer is bad and anything that promotes prayer is good but there's some things there's some patterns emerging in spiritual prayer which I think are not healthy um, and, and, and you know and so there's a, a vast mass of spirituali- literature spirituality today that's available to people and some of it I think is very unhelpful Um, and there's there's not much discernment offered about it Um, and um, you see again it's the Holy Spirit always and so uh, for me I think an ecumen of the Spirit means it also offers us a methodology that when we're approaching other groups we have to ask first question is what is the work of the Holy Spirit among these people what is the work of the Holy Spirit here in this heritage Amen. And that's what the Lord, that's what's essential for unity that's what God is invested himself in and this also means seeing what in this heritage is maybe not directly the work of the Spirit, is accidental, incidental not essential and, and these questions are, are, are there you know, so the anyway, the sorry, I've talked enough. I did have Okay, good. But
6: and Mahesh has a very powerful healing ministry and I um, really uh, respect him a lot and uh, he was in Austin he comes to Austin frequently he feels like the Lord has a powerful calling in our city um, and uh, you know sometimes um, prophets give words and they have the meaning they intend but they also have more meaning and more subsequent meaning that sometimes is even more accurate than what they thought it meant at first um, but um Mahesh was referencing a 100-year rain that occurred in Death Valley. I think it was in around the year 2000 or 2001, maybe. Uh, but it, it was a 100-year rain. Rain of this magnitude hadn't occurred anywhere close to it in 100 years. There were flowers of species that were thought extinct in that area, or, or just no longer in that area, that blossomed. And uh, he really took it as a prophetic sign of the Lord's healing and of, of the rain of the Spirit um, falling on the church and on the earth. And um, he's saying this wonderful song. Mahesh, is, he's so unique. He just starts singing, uh, Time for healing has come. Time for healing has come. Hear, O oh heavens, hear, O oh earth. Time for healing has come. And he didn't reference it at all to the unity stuff, it was more of actual healing, anointing and power of the spirit being released in the church but I feel like it probably reverberates as a true prophetic word in what we're <coughs> talking about in this hundred year anniversary of the ecumenical movement and the, mm-hmm. the unity mm-hmm. stuff so mm-hmm. oh, thank you
4: mm-hmm.
6: Amen.
3: that's good well, if I may add one other thing you see, I think that um, one of the issues always when you start talking about unity is what, what does unity mean? Um, let me just tell you one, one You know, When I, the Lord had really placed a second coming on my heart and the first teaching trip I did after this was to Europe and I, I was living in the States then and I, I was in Hungary and I'd been invited to speak at a conference of f- about 50 leaders. The average age was about 30, actually, and um, they were from all c- Christian backgrounds, virtually no Orthodox, but I mean Reformed, Lutheran, Catholic, and maybe a Mennonite, there was a Pentecostal and so on. And the, the organiser wanted me to speak about unity because he'd heard me teach on unity, that was why he'd invited me. I want you to teach about unity. So I said, No, the Lord has put on my heart the second coming. I've got to talk about the second coming. <laughs> All the teachings begin with the second coming. And he was protesting, No, we don't want that. <laughs> I want unities. So I said, I will give one teaching on the second coming and unity. Uh, <laughs> un- and the Lord's just, you know. So anyway, that's what happened. So, but what was so interesting was the conference, and this man recognized this after his agrees to recognize it it produced more unity yeah. than any talks on unity would ever have done mm-hmm. 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 because when you talk on unity you'll quickly into this thing from, well what do you mean by unity you see, mm-hmm. and what forms are you going to take what gonna... now one of the issues here of course historically is that a lot of, of evangelicals have um, emphasized sort of the invisibility of the church of the true church and of church as invisible. And um, now, um, and the Catholic Church, of course, along with some others, has emphasised visible unity. And um, I think the truth is that the Church has, in in the deepest realities, are not totally visible. But it has to be a visible reality, and this follows the pattern of the incarnation, um, you know, which is the Word becoming flesh. Um, and today there's much more discussion and the Catholic Church talks more today about organic unity than about visibility. But I think this is the key question. I think the unity has to be an organic unity. Um, and um, this raises all sorts of fears when Catholics talk about organic unity because it means you're really, you know, this fear Catholics trying to Just bring everybody under the Roman umbrella and so on, as it is now. And um, and I think that this is a really key issue. And part of it is, you know, I think if we get it's understanding the relationship between spirit, soul, and body. And that there cannot be, you know, any unity that is not somehow organic not primarily organisational, but of genuine organic unity Mm -hmm. is is something less than the unity of the body of Christ. And also, Mm -hmm. when you do not have that concept, the word body gets tended to evacuate of its full meaning, richness. And so, you know, I find some circles of people... See, the Messianic Jews I have quite a lot to do with. The Messianic Jews do not have organic unity. Now, I know one or two uh, men uh, who I respect deeply, very proud, they see this and acknowledge it and they say they know that the Lord wants to bring this about and they don't know how. But a lot of others sort of, you know, people talk about the body and really there isn't a body. <laughs> you know, it's more, it's more of a depth of desire for a body and the present reality of a body. I'm not wanting to... You know, it, you could, it would be easy for me to sort of laugh at this and say, well, they don't have a body at all and they're just sort of, you know, out of touch with reality. They're not recognising the fact that each one does what they want to do and lead and there's no sort of coherence in the whole thing at all. And you could mm-hmm. easily argue against that, but that's what I think there is... The, the way they constantly speak of the body, it shows... There's a recognition somehow that ought to be a body and we want to be a body and this is itself significant. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the desire to form a body doesn't just produce a body. And, um, and this is also one of the dilemmas that we're facing in this whole issue. So that's another thought. But I think, you know, when you're dealing evangelical Catholic, I think this is an important dimension. Mm-hmm. You see... And it's, there's also a purification on the Catholic side in what's meant by visible organic body, you know. Um, um, okay. Sorry, over to you again. <laughs> 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 I'm too many <laughs> <laughs> I
4: have a
7: question, if we're at the time for questions, or are you? make
3: observations or questions I mean it may not you just can't ask what do you mean by unity
7: (laughs) 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 father please um, redirect this question to another time because it may be opening up a large subject but I'm moved and convinced somewhere in my spirit that the issue of eschatology is an important unifier in this body of Christ, and the idea of a visible hope or a hope that takes um, flesh in the same way among all the parts of the body of Christ, and that is a, a millennial kingdom that has a physical king. I I feel that that's a power that has powerful unifying um, potential. But my question to myself is how much of the body of Christ has a unified hope in, in this about the second coming? How much are we looking for and longing for the same thing, or are we scattered pretty much across the spectrum of, pop, of what it looks like, to, what the millennium or what the second coming is? So you know somewhat about that, and could you speak to it?
3: well this is a key issue Um, and I've been grappling with this issue for a number of years I know Sandy's read my latest book and and the last chapter of this sort of represents my uh, present state of my wrestling with these issues which I think is not a final situation but um, but I think this is symptomatic of the situation we find ourselves in see I think first of all let me comment on one obvious Catholic evangelical difference I think evangelicals tend to operate on the assumption that it's possible and indeed necessary to have lots of very clear statements on all essential things where you, you're saying everything and that's it See, and um, and Catholics tend to operate more with the concept of mystery and um, you know you define certain limits about what's out of bounds but you you don't think you can come up with total explanations Um, and I think this is a a major difference but um, Mm -hmm. you see with this I think the evangelical tendency is to have very clearly defined um, eschatological scenarios People are not comfortable with living with uncertainty or something. And but of course the problem is that there are a lot of competing scenarios. There isn't agreement. And when you focus on timetables and scenarios of how it's going to work out, the result is not unity. In fact. Um, so how do you handle this now? I've been grappling with this, and of course also the issue of the millennium is um, you see the the ortho- Catholic and Orthodox Church really turned away from the concept of millennium around the 4th to 5th century and since then it's been a suspect idea and uh, so how does one handle this and you know I've been wrestling with all, all of this now I think first of all, and this has been my experience in presenting sort of the Second Coming uh, hope, this, when you present the heart of the the hope for the Second Coming, this is profoundly unitive, and I see this, and it's something that does unite people, because the Holy Spirit produces the same hope in the hearts of all uh, believers and this is profoundly unitive, and it's oriented towards the future. It's a unity now, but it's oriented towards the future fullness of unity. And that is undoubtedly clear. The question is I mean, you, you said the concept of one millennium under one king, this is a deeply unifying thing. Well, historically it isn't because um, it's been a subject of great contention. Um, um, now, how are we to read this? Now, of course, um, um, the, 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 the the changing understanding of, of the churches about the Jews is fundamental here because the Jews are the bearers of the Messianic hope as a people. The Jewish people are the carriers of the hope of the coming Messiah, coming King, coming Kingdom. And so it it makes sense to me that when the church turned away from the Jews, rejected the Jews and said in some way, understood the church had simply replaced Israel, there was something lost. And at this point, the eschatological hope starts to weaken mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, I th- so I think the recovery of the eschatological hope is deeply related to the recovery of understanding of the place of Jewish people Israel in, in God's purposes um, so I think that is very clear to me I'm mostly clear on that um, and now um, you know so I think the concept of millennium is really a rather Jewish concept and of course when the church turned away from it in the 5th century there were people who denounced it who denounced it as a Jewish myth Um, and um, I don't you know I can't say how many but that was said by some Um, but I do think this is, is a rather Jewish concept um, and um, now in fact the fathers of the church of the first 300 years mostly believed in, in a millennium before the church turned away from him. they didn't believe in a rapture like being taught by many evangelicals and modern times, but they did believe in millennium and I think this is very important to separate these two ideas because they've often been linked tightly together um, with the millennium being presented as part of a detailed dispensationalist system and and this is I think um, profoundly I I think there's something here that is at variance with the whole heritage I also am deeply convinced that you know, I mean, I think the idea of the church being removed from the earth before the Lord comes—I believe this is profoundly mistaken—and mm-hmm. I also think that it prevents the church fulfilling her role, which is to always to be pre- the preparation of the bride mm-hmm. and the preparation of the coming for the coming King. And that, some, that any theory which takes the church out of the game before that happens, I think, has to be profoundly wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> you know, it also it says in, you see, in the Catholic understanding, and this is one of the big obstacles here, is the liturgical sacramental understanding, and it's expressed in one Corinthians eleven twenty six. You know, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the death of the Lord until He comes. Mm-hmm. You see, and um, and um, now, of course, some people that until he comes to rapture the church but I mean I, I don't think that, I, don't th- I think that's uh, doing violence to the whole context now the however I think the question of the millennium is this question is much more um, it needs to be re-examined this is I think it needs to be we tested not by making dogmatic affirmations, but by a humble sort of search with the light of the holy spirit. Um, and here uh, we see that, as I said, the f- three first three hundred years most believed in this, and. And one of the things that turned the church away from Augustine was one of the big opponents of this. It, I think that there were circulating some too materialistic ideas of a millennial kingdom. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I think this is represented by Islam and mm-hmm. the Islamic view mm-hmm. of paradise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see, in fleshly joys, you know the mm-hmm. the sort of the suicide bombers will enjoy. So we each be given so many virgins, you know this sort of thing is. Um, um, this was part of the reason why this was turned away from. I think there were two materialistic mm-hmm. views of the millennial kingdom mm-hmm. that were fa- Now I think this begins to put a finger on a key issue because um, I think what we're dealing with we're dealing with some traditions that have preserved one aspect that's important and other traditions that have preserved that another aspect that's important. Now here the historic churches that have not accepted millennium what they preserved is much more strongly I think an understanding of the body an understanding of glorification and of the total transformation in the coming kingdom and so this area is very important because when I read evangelical accounts of millennium and so on, I think they do not do full justice to the total transformation. Now, I know you know there is about what will happen before a millennium, what will happen after it. But, you see, I think that the whole witness of the New Testament is that when Jesus comes, again, he's coming in glory and when it comes in glory, <coughs> this means total transformation. Mm-hmm. You cannot have ca- them carrying on as they were before. You know, there's total transformation. And this is one of the key issues, you see. Now, um, and I, you know, so I think that... Um, now, of course... You know those early fathers of the church who believed in millennium. They didn't base that. I mean, they, they interestingly they understood the story of Genesis one as prophetic of mm-hmm. the seven, the six days of creation being um, a prophetic picture of of of, of thousands of years. You know, because and they interpreted that in the light of Psalm ninety, so on about with the Lord every day is as a thousand years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they applied this to Genesis one. Mm-hmm. Now this is very interesting. This was one of the other. and so that in this framework the millennium corresponded to the seventh day rest,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and then of course in in the earth, at the beginning of Christianity the Lord's resurrection was on. Was on the first day, but it was also described as the eighth day, which is the day of completion. And um, you see, I believe this is just an aside. and just offer this for you to feel if you haven't thought of this before to feed your thinking. I think it's highly significant that the Lord died on a Friday and He rested in the tomb the whole of the Sabbath. After he completed his work on the cross, and um, and then comes the resurrection. Um, I think this is profoundly significant, but I'm not saying we understand all these things. But I think there's the material here for a re-evaluation of, of this thing. And I see, I don't see my way through it completely. I, I so I think it's like the law gives clues and hints and things, and maybe it doesn't all fall into place immediately. But as a Catholic, I'm comfortable with this. It's not <laughs> also, I recognise as a Catholic, it is a, something for discernment by the whole church, and the whole church leadership, and not just for me to resolve on my own and come up with a um, definitive teaching. I think this is ridiculous. You know, no individual can come up with a definitive teaching yeah. for the whole body of Christ it's not a job of any a call of an individual um, it, what the call of an individual is to offer what the spirit teaches them for wider discernment and, and mm. assessment and reception mm. and that's how I see this now the other <coughs> thing about millennium is that I've looked into this question of how much has the Catholic Church rejected Millennialism and turned against it? And what you actually find is the the decisions sort of against it are very few and very mild. It's not like... an. um, And in fact, in, in 1940s, in the middle of World War II, there was a bishop who wrote in from one part of the Catholic world I forget where it was, maybe may have been Chile. And, and I asked a question of the Vatican, is it permitted um, to teach the doctrine of what was called mitigated millennialism? Now I'm not quite sure what was referred to by that, but it, it's like it's it is the saying, is some form of millennium. Can one teach it? And the answer they gave was it is not safe see now that is significant because this is a far cry from anybody who teaches that is excommunicated is is um, anathema and so on you see it, it's about the mildest form of non-acceptance and um, and there are not there have been very few questions about this through the centuries you see so I think, um, I don't think this is a totally closed question. Now, of course, the statements in the creed, like his kingdom will have no end, and so on, Um, but I think all I know is the encounter with the Jewish, the new encounter with the Jewish heritage, has huge implications and it's going to uncover and bring forth a lot that's going to be key in the process towards unity and it's too early to say exactly what it's going to look like but I think this encounter w- new encounter with the Jewish roots, and rereading the scripture particularly mm-hmm. the New Testament in the light of, of the fact that God has not rejected the Jews in light of the Jewishness of Jesus, so all of this is going to lead to to profoundly reshaping—not a total rejection, not you know—but a, a reshaping that is going to be of huge importance because these are the roots of all of us. See, so I think that's very important. I think that's what I'd want to say, you, but. As you realize, it's a huge question, and um, too many minute answer was hardly possible. <laughs> the, uh, you
1: know, I think oftentimes of what Pooh says about being a bear of very little brain, and how you know, how do you respond to this? And part of part of what I believe is that the yearning for Christ's return is as much about catching it as learning it. And so, for us as a prayer community to to encourage and foster that watching and waiting for the return of Christ Mm -hmm. can be a very important part of the process because a a longing of the heart is an undeniable thing and this is the deepest longing that we have within us Mm -hmm. so to awaken that and foster it and and cultivate it in the place of the prayer room as Kansas City has done very well Mm -hmm. is uh, I think a significant act that's that's a response Comes to my mind,
6: yeah. and it's an act of obedience. Um, something that some of, some of the streams that we've <coughs> received a lot from teach, and you know, the Lord commands us to watch. Because mm-hmm. you don't know the hour of the day, and it says, "Watch therefore." And so, I feel like in my tradition and, and where I come from, kind of non-denominational but roughly evangelical background, um, uh, we, we we've really lost that concern over the end times in the community mm-hmm. of the Lord, not just when it will occur, but just having that longing grow yeah. in our hearts, we've kind of said, oh, it's not important.
1: I remember being a teenager and hearing about the Lord's return and thinking, don't come yet, there's some things I want to get done, <laughs> you know, so just elevating, learning how to elevate that desire, in. so.
0: Well, I think, that, I mean, that's very... That longing is very weak in me, and I see that as a real weakness of my you know, church tradition. Is that that Diane and I were talking about last night about? If that's one of the reasons God brought us to the house of prayer was to ignore that and that, so cause that to, you know, blaze, and that we're so happy to be here because it's something that's not a valued part of our tradition. And but even so, from the outside looking in, it seems like a real longing would value relationship above knowledge. And I think that's kind of a key. I've been hearing God say a lot lately. It's this phrase that relationship trumps ministry, mm-hmm. because God is like it's about relationship and the desire for intimacy over having the answers or a solution or uh, knowledge that makes you feel more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad I, that. I just uh, mm-hmm. think that might be. Yeah. Do you think that might be am you know, I on the right track? Am I <coughs> often left feeling? No, 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 yeah, I think
3: so. Yes. But I mean, I think it's a, it's the longing. Is not a sort of content-free longing. Um, mm-hmm. There's a content which is the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we really taste the Lord. Mm-hmm. We have a knowledge of the Lord, mm-hmm. Jesus. But but this is a beginning, mm-hmm. and you know this language of first fruits that Paul uses is like in Romans eight twenty-three. It's very important, and um, and so. You know, there is the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a real presence of the Spirit in us. But this presence awakens of itself the desire for the fullness. Mm -hmm. But we need also feeding. People need feeding with a content so that it's not a um, a content-free kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a vacuum waiting to be filled. It's something that we taste now and because of what we taste now we have the longing for the fullness that is promised and of which the presence now is the guarantee, this is another important word Paul uses often guarantee see, which is that um, I think that this is fundamental so there's a content and the content is to do with Jesus, the knowledge of the Lord uh, the presence of the Spirit in us and this produces this desire. But this is also the same that's produced in all people. Everyone who receives the Holy Spirit receives these. This produces a profound unity in the hope. Um, see, and so um, and it's this perspective that makes possible a profound unity in groups with people from very different backgrounds think that that was really even
5: a theme that the Holy Spirit was infusing, even as we were worshiping last night, um, you know, just as as I experienced it, the worship went on, and then you began to sing prophetically, you know, prepare you the way, prepare you the way, and then that actually caused me to open it to Isaiah 40, so it's the forerunner calling of prepare the way, prepare the way, so I'm starting to meditate, and I'm, I drill specifically on verse 5, chapter 40, verse 5, because of just a quick story. But about six years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a Derek Prince conference in Charlotte, and there was a, it was a gathering about Israel. So uh, Karen and I, my wife and I, jump in the car and we start driving down there. And then the scripture starts coming to my mind. I'm thinking, I tell Karen, I said, uh, What's that scripture about uh, uh, the glory of the Lord be revealed and something, something? I said, I just. It's really coming to me. And she said, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. So we get to the event. And so I pull up in the Bible, and I'm kind of looking through, looking through. it. finally I get there, and they start singing this you know, Hebrew-style worship that the worship team is you know, going on with. This. And so when they start singing spontaneously, I start singing Isaiah 40, verse 5, because it feels so good. I mean, everybody's singing different stuff. So I'm just in my own little world <laughs> thinking, this is just me and God. And I'm singing, you know,
4: and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And I'm just kind of off-key and everything. It's fun. And uh,
5: and then this speaker, who's a well-known prayer leader from Kansas City, he, sp- he spoke a message out of Isaiah 40, verse 5. And I'm like, wow, I got one. And, then, <laughs> and uh, so I carried that forward. And then two years ago, there's another iteration of this Isaiah 40, verse 5. So get this. So that all happens last night. I'm thinking, man, it's Isaiah 40, mm-hmm. verse 5. This morning I get up. And I, I subscribe to the email list from the Moravian Daily Text, which is yeah. from Zinzendorf's Prayer Book. Yeah, and their primary verse today is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's, I mean, when I read it, I went, oh my, <laughs> that was really good. So the Lord really is speaking this even for us here. Mm-hmm. In- I think,
7: um, in, my, in my milieu, perhaps uh, in my church culture, people have not wanted to speak about the second coming perhaps because it feels kooky or it could lead to some excesses Mm -hmm. or it's not balanced Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, what I feel is a permission from the Holy Spirit to not only long for it, begin to speak about it and that it's a healthy thing Mm -hmm. but I feel like um, God has given he's given health Mm -hmm. and and, and and boundaries in which to speak about it that um, that will release people. It will release the longing of our heart because none of us really want to be kooky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know uh, s- uh, stories of groups of people who predicted the day and the hour that Jesus would return, and went up to a mountain and held hands and shut down shop, and Jesus didn't return. So we don't want to be like that. But I think we've lost mm-hmm. any healthy way. To let this stir, and I feel like that's been returned to us Mm -hmm. as a church, and especially in Austin, and especially Mm -hmm. through what your contribution has been. Mm -hmm. It has meant so much to me. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, one thing I find, since the Lord really placed this on my heart, and I teach about it, is that there's one time of year when you can talk about this in the Catholic world without being mm-hmm. peering kooky and that's Advent yeah. mm-hmm. ah. because this is tremendous blessing because, ah. <laughs> because <laughs> when you look at the prayers of the liturgy for Advent mm-hmm. there are all sorts of prayers about the second coming mm-hmm, yeah. now you see one of the things that's at the heart of Vatican II was the liturgical renewal the restoration of a living liturgy because in fact what had happened was that the liturgy had become alienated in practice from from most people. Although people had a great devotion um, to going to Mass and everything, you know, it was not a corporate act of worship. Um, You know, some of the priests did, the people watched, they prayed the rosaries or whatever, you know, um, depending on their degree of piety. But what in fact happened during this long period when the liturgy was not really a living liturgy was that the, the people's aff- the effective side of Catholic piety was expressed through all sorts of devotions that arose outside the liturgy see now the devotions that arose this is, a, this is a difficult area because I think a lot of devotions it's, you cannot say they're simply bad but you see the liturgy is profoundly biblical mm-hmm. it's profoundly trinitarian in its structure it's mm-hmm. profoundly communitarian yeah. mm-hmm. and the popular piety is none of those things mm-hmm. normally um, I'm not saying it's not anti-trinitarian but it's not. doesn't have a trinitarian framework mm-hmm.
2: Father uh, Peter could you maybe explain for some people who, who aren't as familiar with the Catholic Church what you mean by devotional piety well I, I
3: mean you see, if you ask what were the things that Catholics felt, you see, the liturgy was in Latin until mm-hmm. forty years ago, or mm-hmm. just over 40 to 50 years ago, and at that and most people did not understand Latin, mm-hmm. and um, very few, and even some of the priests didn't. Um, now, so what? But that Catholics had a lot of things happened in their own language. Such as Stations of the Cross um, would be a very obvious example of that, but a lot, all the devotions to the Sacred Heart, novenas, nine-day periods of prayer for this and that, and various things, things to do linked with apparitions of Mary and so on, and uh, all of these gave rise to a whole apparatus of practices and so on. Now. I don't think the practices are all bad I mean the Stations of the Cross is one very obvious has a lot of to be said for it and it's one of the Catholic practices that may be more attractive to to other Christians but it, it doesn't have this essential Trinitarian structure you see because the liturgy is primarily addressed to the Father you know you have at the end of Eucharistic prayer this thing about it's totally Christologic it's through Christ you know through you know through him Christ Jesus with him in him all glory and honour is yours almighty father um, so in the unity of the Holy Spirit forever and ever and it's profoundly uh, structured this way and the prayers of the spirit it's the spirit that comes and transforms the offering and so on now, and, and transforms the believers in communion so this is profoundly Trinitarian um, and um, the, so one of the things at Vatican City, they saw this is, is at the heart of, of a real Catholic renewal is the restoration of a living liturgy, and this was the vision of the pioneers in liturgical movement in the Catholic Church which was also beginning more or less near to 1910 1907 or eight, mm-hmm. actually and, um, and so um, you know this w- this was extremely important and um, you see th- so you um, when you look at, like for example, this issue of what happened to eschatology, what happened to, uh, and the whole question of of um, the roots, in the Jewish roots and influences. What's very clear is these things were preserved primarily through the liturgy and not in mm-hmm. theology. So, it, it's in mm, because yeah. the liturgies were always preserved. The heartland that go back many, many centuries. So the, the liturgies represent a much more ancient heritage, and the theological formulations mm-hmm. sort of became much more influenced by uh, by philosophies and things of particular periods. But the liturgy mm-hmm. preserved much more. So it's in the liturgy, you find in every Catholic liturgy this clear affirmation of the Second Coming. um, but the people are not aware of it it's not normally preached about Mm -hmm. and so on now one of the amazing things is that in the catechism of the catholic church the teaching on eschatology it's really lifted up and given a much more prominent place and it has it comes in several places it comes first in the section, there's a whole section of the Catechism that goes through the Creed with a commentary on each article of the Creed. But there's a whole thing about the Second Coming on the thick line in the Creed He will come again in, mm-hmm. um, to judge the living and the dead. And in this section, it has one amazing heading in the Catechism. It has a heading the glorious advent of Christ. The hope of Israel. Wow.
4: <laughs> this
3: is astonishing because it's not saying it was the hope of Israel, it's saying it is the hope of Israel. The glorious advent coming of Christ, the hope of Israel. Mm-hmm. This is sto- and this is where and under that heading you have a teaching about the fact of the that the Jews have to come in before the before the coming of the Lord, you know that the, the it p- puts together passages from one Corinthians, Ephesians, and Romans, um, mm-hmm. all in the one paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, but see, that is then there's teaching on the second coming, on the section on the liturgy, mm-hmm. because the whole point about the liturgy is is this framework of past, present, and future. And this is already there in the Jewish feasts. Mm -hmm. Because Judaism is very liturgical faith. Mm -hmm. And so this is so in this, in the liturgy, there's always the aspect of memorial of the past. Jesus says do this in memory of me. This is a very Jewish concept. Remember. Remember what
4: I've done. Mm
3: -hmm. And so but then that this remembrance is believed, even in the Jewish tradition, in some way to make present what's being remembered. So when Jews celebrate Passover, they believe they are somehow taking part in this event. They're not just remembering it like you look at a photograph album of a holiday, like, vacation mm-hmm. last year. You know, I mean, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole more powerful concept of remembering, and and this brings it into the present as a there's a presence now but this is of its nature right. preparing mm-hmm. f- for the fullness to come and the hope. And this belongs to the structure of Jewish worship and feasts and it was taken up into Christian religion. and it's still there. So this is not present in the popular mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. Let me just say,
1: Sister Agnes in Antioch called this remembering the future. <laughs> Remembering the future as well as remembering the past.
3: Yes, yes. You see, and this is linked to the promises, which are a central element in Israel's faith. The promises. You know, when Paul lists the the privileges of Israel in Romans nine, four and five, which he presents not as past things but as present reality, he prom- the promises is one of the things in the list. The covenants, but the promise. So. I think you see therefore the renewal of liturgy is extremely important Mm -hmm. Um, and because it's biblical trinitarian christological Mm -hmm. the role of the spirit you know it's and um, and it has this this essential framework of past present future, integrated into it. And um, you see, and one of the, th- the big needs of Catholic people, you know, i say all Christians really, is is to that this becomes part of the way we live. It, it's a structure mm-hmm. of our life as believers, as a community of believers, and not just a theological idea that you know um, you once heard of. And um, okay, so I, I think it's very important when I mean. When, so when I am talking to Catholics, one of the things I always do use the season of Advent, when there's lots more prayers, it, but also to just the, the prayers of the Eucharist that celebrated. They all go to every Sunday when I am talking to Catholics, and it. it of what's there, you know, we say well the Catholic Catechism says in its commentary on the Our Father that the primary meaning of thy kingdom come is praying for the definitive coming of the Lord you know, mm-hmm. the last day in glory that's what mm-hmm. you're asking mm-hmm. for when you say the Our Father now, uh, there's a prayer that follows the Our Father in every um, Mass and that ends with as we wait in In hope for the glorious coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. (laughs) As we wait in joyful hope. So people are saying, um, this is being said every Sunday, um, there, and you know, but um, Mm. in fact, um, it doesn't quite correspond to the reality that's taking place, usually, Mm -hmm. that that all these people are waiting in joyful hope. Mm Unfortunately, I don't think they are, mm-hmm. but this is part of the task. <laughs> yes. but, I mean, yes. but this is there, you see. So mm-hmm. when you draw attention to this, the people can't really say, you know, this this is not accepted. This isn't part of our faith or something, because right. mm-hmm. it's there and it's be always been there. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so it makes me think of the fact that there's a, we've seen a movement in Austin of young people in the evangelical. Charismatic tradition, who get drawn to the liturgy, suddenly have this love of liturgy awaken in them, and they end up, you know, going and visiting, sur- surreptitiously visiting mm-hmm. <laughs> Anglican churches or converting to Catholicism, or whatever, much to this you know, bewilderment of the pastors of the churches that they leave. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's not this, you know, this is quite a widespread yeah.
3: phenomenon quite a widespread phenomenon. One man who wrote about it was an Episcopalian at Wheaton College who's died now called Robert Weber. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, He wrote quite a bit about this phenomenon. And um, of course, there's also been a number of Evangelicals and Pentecostals who've joined the Orthodox Church. Mm But...
1: What it makes me what this discussion makes me wonder is if there's not a piece of that that's a longing for our Jewish. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, Judaism. you
3: see. That we don't know. Mm-hmm. No, but it, well, you know, it is, mm-hmm. but it, it, mm-hmm. it also means that um, I think we need to show its Jewishness because that, you know, it's not, first of all, saying this is a Catholic or an Orthodox reality. There's, there's a biblical reality you're dealing with first that is reflected in these traditions but I I think if we present it as a biblical reality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to Mm -hmm. help a lot um, and and to be able to show how this is so deeply rooted in the whole Mm -hmm. biblical pattern see and I mean it's there in 1 Corinthians 11 you know, I quoted where when you eat this, drink this cup. You proclaim my death until the Lord comes. I think that, you know, in fact, in this whole passage, you've got, you know, you've got this pattern, memorial presence, and how. Mm-hmm. And they're all tightly linked.
1: deep wow. yeah. <laughs>
2: it's fun. I, I have um, something for us to do on our way out. So if we can close, I, I have a message from John Boyle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Wonderful. <Yay. laughs> well, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> I do that? Well, it, it, um, you yeah, probably part for now, part for later. <laughs> but in uh, the idea of, of, of kind of memorial and remembering the future um, he brought many gifts, uh, largely for children, but but one, one for, for me and Thomas. And he brought uh, confetti eggs <laughs> and said that today is like a party and that we should mm-hmm. celebrate <laughs> The, the the return of Jesus was, was a joy today. And so on your way out I think everybody should grab a confetti egg and whack somebody. <laughs> 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 that's not like fun. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's Sounds good. Right. <laughs> <That's excellent. laughs>
1: so uh, mm-hmm. any any other closing words? <laughs> <laughs> you can hardly top that. <laughs>